0: everybody. Let me open us in a brief word of prayer as we get going. Lord Jesus, we thank you once again that we've been able to come to your house and to worship today and to hear your word preached and taught. Lord, we pray that as we um, take this time now to study your word together, that you would send your Holy Spirit and that you'd work among us and that you would change what we believe and what we do and how we love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are today on our second session on the theology of the Lord's Supper. Again, we are uh, rapidly approaching the end of this series. Um, I've said before that this, this series has gone a lot longer than I thought it was going to when I first started it. But that's because there was just so much fun stuff to talk about. And uh, it's just been really good. So I've been enjoying it. And I hope you have too. Um, last week, we dealt with the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So we did a, a nice systematic overview, point by point of what the Lord's Supper is, all right? And uh, today we're going to deal with the mode of the Lord's Supper. So last week was the meaning, today is the mode. And when we went over the doctrine of baptism, we did the same thing. We talked about the meaning of baptism and the mode of baptism. And in the mode of baptism, we dealt with, you know, pretty controversial questions in Christianity right now. Things like, should you immerse in your baptism? Should you pour water? Should you sprinkle water? Can you do all three, right? We've dealt with some of those issues. And when we talk about the mode of the Lord's Supper, right, or, or how we administer the sacrament, how we should observe it as a church, uh, these issues are not quite as controversial or quite as at the forefront of some of the baptism mode controversies, but they're still important, and there are still controversies in how we administer the supper. And so we're going to talk about some of those things this morning uh, we're going to do two things all right first thing we're going to do is we're just going to look at the administration of the supper in general talk about some basic elements that need to be there as we do it and then the third or sorry the second thing that we're going to look at is the elements of baptism or excuse me the elements of the lord's supper and when i say elements we're talking about the bread and wine in other words why do we use those things and not as we talked about last week coke and chips right and I think that sounds crazy, but there actually are some churches that do that uh, or some youth events or, I mean, uh, and they do that or perhaps other things. So we're going to talk about that issue. All right. Firstly, then, let's look at the administration of the Lord's Supper. And these are some basic points that we want to grasp about, about how the Supper should be administered. And the reason I'm bringing these up is not so much you know, to teach you how to administer the sacraments yourself, because as we're going to see, that's not a valid thing to do, okay? But the reason I bring up these points is because then we as a church, as we sit and receive the Lord's Supper, as we are going to do today, for example, then you can sort of understand why the service is structured in the way that it is, so you can better understand why that's been put in place that way. All right, so first thing about the administration of the Supper that we want to get down here is that... If we're going to administer the Lord's Supper and baptism, too, this applies to all the sacraments, we have to have the preaching of the word of God. Okay? That's the first thing. You don't administer a sacrament without preaching. And the reason for that, as Martin Luther very well explained and put out and that our reformed tradition has followed, is because the sacraments are a visible word of God. Right? They present the truth of the gospel in a visible way that we can see, that we can touch or taste and so on. But the problem is, if you just present the gospel in a visible form without explaining what it is, that's not going to help you. If you just dump water on somebody, that's not baptism. You have to have the preaching of the word, the explication of the gospel, saying, what is this baptism actually doing? What is it symbolizing? And see, it's there when, when the sacrament is connected with the word of God. That's where the spirit is working. That's where faith is strengthening. That's where we are receiving the sacraments as a means of grace. Okay? So that's the first thing. Got to have the preaching of the word with a sacrament. And you'll notice when this morning, when we partake of the supper, when does the supper take place? It's right after the preaching of the word. And okay? that's not a coincidence. That is intentional. All right. So we need to have the preaching of the word. Second thing we need in the administration of the supper Right? Is we need prayer and the blessing of the elements. And the reason we do this is because that's precisely what Jesus did. He administered the supper, he took bread, and the text says, after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. So there's prayer, you know, Jesus praying before meals. In fact, he did that when he fed the 5,000 too. That's why we, as Christians, pray before we eat. We're following the example of Jesus. So we got the same thing here as we partake of this feast. This Lord's Supper, so we got to have some prayer and blessing of the elements, and you'll notice that that will happen this morning too. Thirdly, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we receive both the bread and the wine. Now that might seem kind of trivial, like well, obviously we receive both, but actually in some eras of church history, this was not how it was done. In the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, they were only giving the bread to the lay people. Only the priests were allowed to partake of the wine. And the reason for that is because when they partook of the Lord's Supper in the Roman Catholic Church there, they would always use one cup. So everyone would drink from the same cup. And what would happen is the lay people would come forward and they would open their mouths and the priest would take the cup and he would pour the wine into their mouth. And so the idea arose around the 13th and 1400s that they, they shouldn't do that because there were some accidents where the wine got spilled on the ground. And because Roman Catholics believe that the wine is not actually wine, but is the true physical blood of Jesus, they didn't want to risk dumping the blood of Christ on the ground. And so they stopped giving the wine to the congregation. Only the priests got to have the wine. And when the Protestants came along, they were like, no, sorry, that's not biblical. Jesus gave the bread and the wine, both his disciples and they gave both to the congregations as they administered the supper in the book of Acts. So it may seem trivial, but this is really important. All of God's people receive the bread and the wine. That's important in the supper. Fourthly, then, in the, the Lord's Supper, it has to be administered in corporate worship. Again, Sacraments, because of their nature, because they are a part of the church and they are part of church functions, Right, because they are a part of worship, these are not things that are to be administered in your backyard, in your swimming pool. Right? It's not a baptism if you come to know Christ and some random person comes over and baptizes you in the swimming pool. That's not a legitimate baptism. It needs to be in corporate worship. And that's because we see that in examples in, in the scriptures and just because of the nature of what a sacrament is. But you might ask the question then at that point, well, hold on a second. What about communion for those who are shut in, a communion for those who can't come to corporate worship or who can't come to church because they have some particular sickness or they're just too weak or they're at the end of their life. You know, Can, can we give communion to them? And the answer to that is yes, we can. And it's, it's sometimes called private communion, although I, I don't really like that term because it's somewhat of an oxymoron if you think about it. It's like, Private fellowship doesn't really work that way, okay? Because communion is, the whole point is communing with the body of Christ, community. You have to have a bunch of people together. But what private communion is, is it's when the pastor comes to someone who cannot come to church and he declares a worship service right there in that nursing home or right there in that hospital room or right there in someone's home. There's a call to worship. There's the reading of scripture. There is the preached word. Maybe it's, you know, a one-minute sermon. It doesn't have to be a full 30 minutes. But there is an actual worship service taking place, and then the supper is administered. Okay? So there are exceptions to administering the supper within corporate worship, legitimate exceptions. But that is not the normal way it's done. The normal way it's done is in corporate worship. We don't have the right to just to exercise these sacred things whenever we want to. Okay? These are part of corporate Christian worship, and they need to stay that way unless it's an extraordinary situation. All right, and that leads us then to point number five, which is that the Lord's Supper is to be administered by a minister of the gospel, okay? And this is consistent with the nature of a minister. If you look in the scripture, there is a biblical distinction made between the layperson and the minister, And this is not because the minister is somehow more spiritual, or because he is so much closer to God, or because he is such a a more better person than anybody else. It's simply because of the nature of the office to which God has called him. Ministers are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. By the way, that word mystery there in the biblical text is musterion, the same word the early church used to refer to the sacraments. And so the church, the early church in the first century understood the ministers are called to administrate the sacraments. This is not something that others may take upon themselves. Some people get a little uncomfortable here, though, just so you know, not so much in our Presbyterian circles, but in other circles. They get a little uncomfortable with this idea because they they think it, it doesn't do justice to the priesthood of all believers, for example. Or that they think that, you know, we say only... Ministers can administrate the sacraments Because we think ministers are so much closer to God But none of that's the case right? If you think about The relationship between A husband and a wife right, There are certain duties given to one That are not given to the other Think about the wife for example if The wife is called It is her duty to submit to the authority of her husband Right We know scripture teaches that In three distinct places in the New Testament Okay Well, does that mean that the wife is inferior to the husband? No, of course not. Paul makes it very clear that with respect to salvation, with respect to standing before God, there is neither male nor female, nor slave, nor free, nor anything. All are one in Christ. So before God, men and women are absolutely equal. But in terms of the duties that God has prescribed, the duties are different. He has called them to different tasks. And in like manner, when we talk about the minister of the gospel, he is called to specific tasks. And one of his specific tasks is to administrate the sacraments. Now, again, there might be extraordinary situations in which a layperson might be called to do this. For example, uh, I've heard of a presbytery uh, giving permission to the elders of a church on the mission field to administrate the sacraments when they've been without a pastor for a whole year. And there, there was no one else who could do it. So there might be extraordinary situations that you could appeal to, but in terms of the general, everyday operations of the church, the sacraments are not things that we just take upon ourselves. They are to be administered in corporate worship by an ordained minister of the gospel. So that's an important point that we want to get across, which is why, by the way, I'm not preaching today. I'm on the schedule to preach today, but because today is... Uh, on the schedule for the Lord's Supper, Robert is preaching because I can't administrate the sacraments. I'm an intern in the presbytery. I'm not an ordained minister, so I don't have that that privilege. That's not a duty that's been given to me yet. So that's why Robert's preaching and that's why he's going to administrate the Lord's Supper during the service today. All right. Then the final thing about the administration of the Supper that we want to understand is that when the Supper is administrated, you will hear this morning a warning you will hear a warning preached that comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians. And that warning is that we need to examine ourselves before we come to the supper, lest we, as Paul says, eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. Okay? Now that's a sober warning. And there are many churches that do not preach this warning, it is absent when the supper is administered. Now, some say this, is, this warning is absent for good reason. And for example, they will say, well, we don't want to preach this warning because we don't want to deter good, sound, believing Christians from coming to the supper. We want them to feel welcome that the table is for sinners and that they can come. And that's a legitimate concern. Right? I had a friend in college who, because he heard the warning preached about the Lord's Supper, did not think that he was worthy to come and so he hadn't gone to the lord's supper for a couple of years that's a legitimate concern and that kind of thing can happen however paul when he writes to the corinthians and he's explaining the lord's supper to them <clears throat> excuse me he pr- proclaims the warning and so there's a very real sense here in which we need to understand that we must not be wiser than God. We must not be wiser than the Holy Spirit. Did not the Holy Spirit, when he inspired Paul to preach this warning to the Corinthians, did the Holy Spirit not know that there would be people who would misunderstand the warning? Absolutely, he did. The Holy Spirit is God. He knows everything. He knows everything that ever has happened, is happening, or will happen. And yet when the Holy Spirit knew people would misunderstand the warning... He still inspired the Apostle Paul to preach that warning to the Corinthians. And so, quite frankly, let us not be wiser than God and say, well, let's not preach the warning because of these concerns over here. Those are legitimate concerns. But we need to preach the warning because the scripture gave it to us. We need the whole counsel of God. And it's an important warning. It's it's a warning for apostates, a warning for those who would come to the table unprepared. A warning for unbelievers who are pretending to be Christians. It's a legitimate warning. And we need that there. But the concerns that others have and why they don't preach the warning do need to be thought about. right? And that's why the warning is often explained after it's preached when the supper is being administered. To explain, hey, you know what? The table is for sinners. If you're a sinner, you come. This is a means of grace for you. Right? But it is a warning to unbelievers. And so we need that balance there and not think that we are wiser than God in how we administrate the supper and what we say about it. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Those are the points that I have on the administration of the supper. All right? So you get some of these basic things as to why we do what we do. Why the supper is, is administrated in this particular way. All right? Now, the second thing that I want to focus on here is the elements of the Lord's Supper. That is the bread and the wine. Because as we talked about last week, right, and, and I mean somewhat humorously, we talk about the fact that there are churches out there, and youth retreats and whatever else, that will administrate the supper with Coke and chips. I had a friend who attended a church where you know, they partook of the Lord's Supper with hot dogs and Kool-Aid. Right? There's some... Really interesting ways that people try to change up the sacrament a little bit, trying to make it a little more modern, a little more up to date with our own culture and our own eating habits, I suppose. And so the question comes up, is this legitimate to partake of the supper in this way? And of course, the obvious answer that we would say is absolutely not. Why would we say absolutely not? Because it goes against the clear example and therefore command of Jesus when he himself instituted the Lord's Supper. That's the primary reason. When Jesus instituted the Supper, he did not do so to say, Alright, here's a suggestion about how you should observe this sacrament in remembrance of me for all of time. Now, Jesus didn't administer it just as like a helpful guide. Here's some things you might do if you think it's helpful. No. No. When Jesus administered the sacrament, he was showing us exactly how we are to do it. And so we do it with bread and with wine, not hot dogs and Kool-Aid. Now, that leads us then to another question, which is this whole issue of bread and wine. How do we define those two elements? Because if you look at churches around the world today, and even just here in America, even just right here in Mississippi, you'll find some different practices about how they administer the supper, some churches are going to use a loaf of bread and they break the pieces off and give them to people. And they use real wine, right? Actual wine, actual alcoholic wine, right? So you've got that, those people. And then you've got the sort of church that I grew up in where they administer the supper with plastic discs and grape juice, all right? And so you've got this whole other side over here where it's kind of bread and wine, when they have plastic discs and grape juice, but not really. I mean, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't, you know? And then you got these guys over here that are really trying to be as precisely, uh, exactly the way that Jesus did it, with the loaf of bread and with one cup of wine, okay? So you've got some divergence there, even in just those substances. So, you know, what do we do with that? This, it's kind of tricky in some ways, and I just want to provide some helpful guidelines here. Um, firstly, if you take... Jesus, the concept of bread from the Gospels and how Jesus administered the bread, you have to admit that there is some uh, ambiguity about exactly what Jesus used. For example, did Jesus use bread that was made with barley or with wheat? Well, we don't know. Both of them are considered bread, but we don't know which one he used. Did he use leavened bread or unleavened bread? Well, we don't know for sure. It might have been unleavened because they were partaking of the Passover. In fact, it's probably likely it was unleavened bread. And in the the period of of historical theology that I'm studying right now and preparing for my PhD dissertation is a period called Reformed Scholasticism. And I love those guys. They are fantastic in so many ways. But one of the great debates that they had about the Lord's Supper was should they use leavened bread or unleavened bread? That was a fierce debate among some of those guys. So even in in different eras of church history, we have some controversies about, well, what precisely was the bread that Jesus used? So there has to be some room here for some Christian liberty on the issue, I think. Because we don't know precisely what bread Jesus used. We can make good guesses. But ultimately, that's not the point. The point is we use bread. We're not going to use chips because chips is a totally different substance from bread. We need to use actual bread. But then with respect to exactly what bread we use, there's probably some liberty there, which is why in this church, for example, we use something like you know wafers or like little crackers sort of things. Right? It's not, strictly speaking, a loaf of bread that we're breaking, like what Jesus specifically did, but it's still under the category of a kind of bread, Okay, a kind of bread that lasts longer than a couple of days. Right? That's why we use it, it's for longevity. So there's some room there for... for just thinking through things and having some Christian liberty with other Christians who do things a little bit differently, okay? But now, that's the bread. Now, transitioning over to the other element, which is wine, this is the one I'm gonna focus on a little bit more in our remaining time together here. Uh, We know, as I've said before, there are a lot of churches that do not use wine in communion. They prefer to use grape juice. Uh, And there's a reason for that. Not really a theological reason so much as a historical reason. But the reason why most churches, in fact, you could say right now, administer the supper with grape juice is because of a couple of things. Okay, the first thing was that in 1869, okay, so middle of the 1900s, right, there was a Methodist minister and his name was Thomas Bromwell Welch, Right? Now think about that name for a second. Thomas Bramwell Welch invented a pasteurization process for grape juice. Prior to 1869, there was no such thing as the substance of grape juice. It did not exist because it would ferment. (laughs) There's one time I made a, a fruit smoothie the other day and I left the cup on the counter, forgot to wash it the next day. Um, there was some strawberry wine in there. I mean, it was, it, those things ferment fast, right? And so uh, that's what would happen prior to 1869. However, Welch invented a way to create wine that was non-alcoholic. And guess what he called it? When he came out with it a few years later, he called it Welch's Alcohol-Free Communion Wine. That's what it was called. And shortly after that, just a few decades after that, we have what was called the prohibition. You guys remember the prohibition from your history classes? Maybe that was a long time for many people, but I'm sure you've heard of it before. Prohibition, of course, was the time when the U.S. actually passed an amendment to the Constitution that prohibited the sale. And the production of all alcoholic beverages in the United States. I don't know how on earth that thing got passed. That's an incredible cultural achievement if you think about it. Like These days, if you tried to pull something like that, then, good luck, you know. You can't even pull anything off these days that's it's anything remotely like that. But that's what happened. Prohibition comes about. This happened in about the... Uh, what did it come into effect here? 1920. That's when this amendment came out. And... That was a perfect move to make in light of the fact that the, that the U.S. had gone through uh, the great the Second Great Awakening uh, a few generations before that, which spawned the holiness movement and spawned the, the anti-alcohol movement and the, well, we've got to be really holy. The Bible forbids drunkenness, so we're not going to have anything to do with alcohol. And so when Prohibition came into effect, all the churches were suddenly like, oh, well, we we can't observe communion now because wine is now illegal in America. And so what did they use? They used Welch's alcohol-free communion wine because that was what was available. And they did that for about 13 years until that amendment to the Constitution was repealed and alcohol was now able to be produced in America. And that amendment, by the way, got repealed not so much because people changed their minds on the subject but because of the Great Depression And they needed to create jobs in the Great Depression. And what better way to create jobs than to produce more uh, alcohol plants and so on. So that's what they went and did. Now, all that being said, when prohibition was repealed, the American churches did not go back to using wine for the most part, at least not right away. They continued using grape juice because that holiness movement mindset was still in effect. And they continued to observe the sacrament with grape juice. Now, I'm not going to say that if you partake of the sacrament with grape juice, that you're not partaking of a true Lord's Supper. I don't want to say that. If there is a a legitimate conscience reason why you do not use wine in the supper, that's fine. I'm not going to step on toes today. Um, Wine is still made from the same, or excuse me, grape juice is still made from the same uh, plant as the wine, and so I think you can make a case that if plastic discs count as bread, grape juice counts as wine. However, with that being said, we're really on the fringes over here. I think, along with uh, Adam, who is the former pastor, obviously, in the session, that wine is the preferable method of partaking of the supper. And some of this information that I'm getting here comes from Adam's blog article that he put on the church website which is fantastic this this was published a couple years ago actually you can still go on there and find it it's on the website and adam there talks about why wine is the superior way to observe the supper and he does it in a couple of ways firstly he says that in scripture we read that wine gladdens the heart now it's not just on the basis of that one verse but rather if you look at the whole of the old testament What you see is that statistically, the vast majority of references to wine in the Old Testament are overwhelmingly positive. Because wine is symbolic of joy and of celebration and of feasting and gladness and even redemption. In our own day, in in the prevailing dominant Christian mindset, we sometimes think of wine as sort of the devil's drink something evil, something that encourages carousing. And while that certainly does happen in some places, you know, alcohol encourages those sorts of things, in the Bible that's not the case. In the Bible, the imagery is overwhelmingly positive. And so that's the first thing that Adam notes, just in terms of the big picture. Wine is not an evil substance in the Scripture. Drunkenness is evil, absolutely, but the actual use of wine itself symbolizes celebration. And then the second thing he notes is that in terms of the symbolic significance of using wine in the supper, wine is a transformed substance. You think about it for a second. In order to make wine, my brother knows this because he actually is a winemaker. He makes some pretty good ones, actually. Um, Just, you know, in, in the backyard sort of a thing, not professionally or anything, but... Uh, wine is a transformed substance. If you want to make wine, guess what you have to do? You've got to kill the grape, don't you? That's what fermentation is. You've got to kill the grape. And then what comes out of that death? Something new. You kill the grape, and a new thing comes out of it. And it's significant, then, why Jesus would choose wine in the supper. Because isn't that exactly what the shedding of his blood is? That he dies by his shed blood. And from that death comes something new. Comes his great resurrection. And that then transfers and applies to us even. Because while we were dead in sin, Christ died for us. And therefore, Paul says, we die to ourselves. And we are raised up with Christ as a new creature. There's a reason why Jesus chose the elements that he did for the sacraments. Jesus did not decide to administer the sacrament of baptism with oil. He didn't administer the sacrament of baptism with orange juice. He could have if he wanted to, but no, water is so powerfully symbolic in the Old Testament for the power of God to cut through anything that he wants to cut through to accomplish what he wants to do to bring cleansing and healing and life. That's the Old Testament imagery surrounding water. That's why Jesus chose water for baptism. When we come to the Lord's Supper, the elements are specifically chosen because of what they represent in the Old Testament. The bread is chosen because it nourishes our bodies. The wine is chosen because it symbolizes death and resurrection accomplished by that shed blood of Christ. It's not an accident that Jesus administered the supper with wine and bread. And so I love, as we sort of wrap this up here, I love what um, my professor, Dr. John Fesco, our professor of theology at RTS, says about this issue. Um, He and I have become really good friends. I'm his teaching assistant. He's a fantastic guy. And here's what he says, quote, While grape juice is nice, should we not follow Christ rather than Mr. Welch? We must be faithful to the example and the command of Christ. We have no authority to change a divinely instituted practice of worship. I think Fesco makes a good point there. Now, uh, I'm hearing an objection that does come from some, and the objection is this. They'll say, well, what about for people in the congregation who are suffering with alcoholism? They're suffering? They, they have a temptation in that area. They've now beaten that temptation. They've been sober for 10 years, and now they're going to come take the Lord's Supper. They're going to taste that wine, and it's going to plummet them into the darkest depths of their temptation. Now, again, that's a legitimate concern, isn't it? We should be sensitive to people's... Temptations and their struggles and the things that they have to deal with. However, like when we talked about preaching the warning for the Lord's Supper, I don't think we should be wiser than God. Because Jesus was well aware in the first century when he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be observed with wine for 1900 years before grape juice was invented. Jesus knew that for those 1900 years there would be many people who struggled with alcoholism in the church. And yet he still administered the sacrament with that substance. And so like what Fesco suggests here, I I want to suggest that too. Grape juice is nice, but it's not what Jesus used. So I encourage you to think through this issue a little bit. Session and Adam did some careful thinking on this a couple years ago when when he produced this article and when they were discussing this. And we do now use uh, wine as an option at the supper. And you'll see that this morning. I encourage you to think about that because um, I think it's important to try to observe the sacrament as much as we can in the way that Jesus did. All right? All right. We are actually over time now. Let me close this in prayer. If you have questions, you can come talk to me afterward here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Lord's Supper. Lord, we are going to prepare to take that supper this morning. Lord, I pray that as we do, you would recall to our minds all of the things that we've been studying throughout this series, that we would remember that this sacrament is to be observed to the end of the world as we await the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we would know that this sacrament is a means of grace to work in us the promises that you offer to us in the gospel, thereby strengthening our faith, nourishing and supporting it and encouraging us in our sanctification, and in our perseverance. Lord, we pray that as we do this today, we would remember what you did for us on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you would work your gospel more deeply in us, both through the preaching of your word and through our partaking of the supper this morning. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.